trying to figure out who knew Don Larson in our, in our church family. Wow. Um, believe me, I, I won't need any sort of uh, physical reminder to be able to remember you. Uh, you'll always be right there. So, um, we pointed out uh, in this series that uh, you and I live in the intersection of the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven came as soon as Jesus Christ began to walk this earth. He said, it's right here. He said, the kingdom of heaven is near. Uh, Yet there is a fulfillment. And he came so that this kingdom of the world could be redeemed. And he saw fit that there would be a time that you and I would be able to live in this intersection and show the kingdom of the world what the kingdom of heaven is like. In other words, we begin to live by the rules of the kingdom of heaven here while still living in the kingdom of the world. And I thought of today, I thought of what I I had to do, and I just wanted to leave you with three questions that you will always hear in the kingdom. Three questions that our king asks us as we're trying to live in the kingdom of heaven in this world. These three questions will always remind us, and I think he's not even interested in the answers. Like a good rabbi, a good rabbi, when he teaches, he asks the right questions. He doesn't give answers. He asks the right questions. And so I just wanted to leave you with these questions that we get to hear from our Savior every day in the kingdom of heaven. After these things, Jesus showed himself. And when they say after these things, we're done with the narrative of the crucifixion. We're done with the narrative of the resurrection. He's been resurrected and he's, he's here. He came to do what he came to do. But he shows himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Sea of Tiberias, by the way, is the Sea of Galilee. Gathered were together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to him, I'm going fishing. They said, we will go with you. They went out, they got in the boat, but that night they caught what? They caught nothing. I made a lot of this when I've taught it before. I can understand the disciples doing this before they knew who he was, but now they absolutely know who he is. Not only did they witness him be crucified, they have all witnessed that he's been resurrected, and yet they still, every one of them, at least these guys, they all try to go back to their other lives. They all go back to fishing. And what statement are they making? I think it's sad. I think it's very sad because the statement that I believe that they're making, that that I think that we have all the evidence here, is that none of them feel qualified to be a disciple anymore because of what they did. They betrayed him. Every one of them did. And especially Peter. Peter was the self-appointed, if you will, leader of all of them. He stood up the night before he was crucified and said, I will die with you. And yet he denies him three times the opportunity he's given. And I think that every one that, that go with him, they all feel the same way. They abandon him. When he needed him the most, they abandon him. That, that trial, that, that, that sham of a trial that they went through, do you know that if one of the disciples would have stood up, they would have put an end to the trial? And every one of them know it. They all know Jewish law. Every one of them did, and none of them would. I think what they're feeling right now is that their heart is broken. They feel that they have absolutely disqualified themselves from the kingdom of heaven. They're no longer his disciples, especially Peter. Peter feels completely disqualified. The previous resurrected meetings with Jesus, Jesus has said not one word to Peter. When you look back and you see this, he's not spoken to Peter. And Peter has to be thinking, 
Well, he, that, that, that proves it. He feels the same way that I do. And so Peter says, well, you know, I, I, I got to do something. I got to make a living. So I'm going to go fishing. So he's going back. He's trying to go back. One who betrays, one who denies is not worthy to be a disciple, let alone in charge. So he tries to take control of his life again. And he goes back to what he knows how to do. And he does it all night. And what does he have to show for it? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So imagine Peter's mindset. Now he's even lower than he was before he went out. Because he thought, maybe, maybe, just maybe. You know, I haven't done this in three years, but, you know, I, I, I bet it's like a bicycle. I bet, well, whatever they had back then that you can't forget, you know, after a while. But fishing should be one of those for him. You know, I betrayed away a spot at Jesus' side. And now the only way I know how to do, the only thing I know how to do, I can't do. I stink at it too now. I can't be a disciple. I'm not a fisher of men. And now I'm no longer a fisher of fish either. It's not good enough to be a disciple, to be a fisher of men. Not good enough to be in the ministry. He's not good enough to be in a church. I think we can all relate to Peter. I especially can relate to Peter. But when we do, when we do feel that, when we feel disqualified because of what we've done, because of our failings, because of our betrayal, when I think of all the times that I have fallen absolutely short in ministry, in ministry to you, and how far short I fell of expectations that, were, that you had of me, that I had of me, I get to hear this question. Here comes the first question. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus says to them, children, you have no fish, do you? Now you think about it for a second. He knows as much as anybody how low Peter is right now, but I don't think the king of heaven is pouring salt in a wound right now. I think what he's trying to do is to let Peter know something and let every one of you and me know something. Whenever we feel we failed and we feel that we failed enough to disqualify us from the kingdom of heaven, that we have fallen short as spouses, that we have fallen short as friends, that we have fallen short as disciples, because we all fall short of the glory of God. Every time we do, I want you to hear this question. Children, you have no fish, do you? And, of course, the answer to that is what? No. Even they say it. They answered him what? No. No. The answer is no. I got no fish. He called me. I stood in that baptistry, and he called me to be a fisher of men nearly 30 years ago. And I've got no fish. I was given the honor and the privilege of being able to baptize people. But I didn't catch them. The Holy Spirit brought them to us. They dumped them in our laps. We didn't take credit for this. I hear pastors and churches take credit for it all the time. We held an evangelistic series. We baptized 300 people. Aren't we good? Are you kidding me? Children, you have no fish, do you? No. We don't take credit for this. Evangelism isn't because we did something right. In fact, evangelism may come about when we do things wrong. Evangelism may come about when we're finally honest about who we really are. And we fall down on our knees and we confess, no, we don't have any fish. 
and there's nothing I can do about it. Because Jesus says, cast your net on the right side of the boat. Cast the net up to the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. Now, I know what he's asked them to do. They fished at night with nets because you couldn't fish during the day. Because if the fish were close enough to the surface to be caught by the net, they scatter at the side of the net. So what they did was they fished at night. They attracted the fish with a torch. And by the way, the waters cooled down at night too, so they would come to the surface. When it gets hot in the Sea of Galilee, the fish go deep because it's cooler down below. You can't fish with a net in the daytime. However, you can in the morning. You got one cast left, one or two casts left, as long as the sun is low enough on this side of the boat that you can cast on the other side. And I guarantee you that was the last cast that they made. And Jesus waited until they pulled that last cast in. And this is when he says, children, you have no fish, do do you? And they say, no, cast your net on the other side of the boat. Cast your net on the sunny side of the boat, which violates every single fundamental rule of fishing on the Sea of Galilee. The last time he told them to do this, Peter said, you don't know what you're talking about. And Peter went and did it just to prove to Jesus that he didn't know what he was talking about. And what happened? Well, it happened here too. It happened here too. So when Peter hauls this in, I don't know if he gets it. I don't know if he gets it right at this time. But when he hauls this in, there's the answer to the question. You have no fish. And all of your knowledge, all of your experience, everything that you've got is not going to get you fish one. But I know what to do. And Jesus fills the net and brings it in. So that when they bring it ashore, there's no way they can boast. A church can't boast about people that have come to them when they've been drawn by the Holy Spirit, when they've been given as a gift to God. We don't boast about this. And we certainly, certainly don't think that we attract people because we're such perfect Christians. As a matter of fact, we repel people when we're perfect because people who are perfect are not to be trusted. You ever met anybody who was perfect? Guarantee you, you did not trust them. And you still don't, do you? Because perfect people have a way of letting you know that they're perfect. So the whole thing, yes, is an object lesson, yes. All of Peter's knowledge as a fisherman, nothing. One cast. Violate the rules. Let a betrayer and a denier be a disciple again. Let a betrayer and a denier, a man who sat at my very table and boasted that he would die with me, and then the first opportunity that he got, he denies me three times. I still want him as my fisherman, but you have no fish. I'm going to give them to you. So the first question, children, you have no fish, do you? He knew that Peter had done what he had done. He knows that every, in fact, he knew that Peter was going to do it before Peter did it. And he told Peter he was going to do it. And Peter didn't believe him. And yet he knew that he was going to stand at the Sea of Galilee today and he was going to bring him back. He was going to bring him back. Children, you have no fish. There are going to be times when we feel that we've absolutely, utterly failed. I have to tell you, in leadership at Grace Point the past couple of years, Pastor Walt and I both feel that we have failed somehow on some level. And everybody here needs to know that no matter where we are, everybody here needs to hear this question. Grace Point, you have no fish, do you? No. No. 
But he doesn't leave us with that question. But if we would just say no and admit it to him, just say no uh, and, and, and confess as to who we are, because if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and true will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In fact, what John is saying that day is, if you confess your sins, he who is faithful and true will forgive your sins and forget that you ever did it. He loves us in spite. He loves us because all we need to know is that really is who we are. We have no fish. We have no fish. Yet if we would just violate all the kingdom, uh, the kingdom of the world's rules when it comes to failure. See, the kingdom of the world says that when you failed, you failed. Okay, that's it. You're out of the club. You're done. You fail as a leader. You can't be a leader anymore. Why? Because you failed at doing it. We don't need failures right now. We need successes right now. And every time that we feel and every time that we play the kingdom of heaven's game by the kingdom of the world's rules, we get discouraged. We want to leave. We don't want to come back to church. We don't want to do what we've been called to do. None of us do because we feel that we fail. But if we would just cast our net on the other side of the boat when we hear that question, then the kingdom, the king of the kingdom will fill our nets. The thing that happens too, what's interesting, is that when the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Simon Peter heard this. It was the Lord. He put on some clothes for he was naked and jumped into the sea. Yeah, I know we made a big deal about this. You know, was he really naked? (laughs) Those with Victorian values say, no, he had to be wearing a loincloth or whatever. Look, he's at night in the Sea of Galilee. Fishing looks real hard to me. They want to do it naked. Do it naked. What I never understood was putting that robe on and jumping into the sea. Wow. You don't put a robe on and jump into the sea. Anyway, anyway. What's he trying to do here? I've always wondered about this. What's he trying to do? I had a professor tell me that maybe at this point in time he recognizes it. At this point in time he sees his opportunity. He doesn't feel disqualified anymore because Jesus just performed the same miracle he did for him back when he was in the club. Back when he was ahead. And maybe Peter recognizes that. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. He may recognize it, but also I think he wants to get there before everyone else does. He needs to get there before everyone else does because he wants to be alone with him. Because if he's going to tell me that I'm out, I don't want to have it done in front of my friends. And by the way, if he's going to tell me that I'm in, but I'm not the leader anymore, I don't want them to hear that either. It's actually kind of desperate there's a desperation to this and I really feel for him I really feel for him if I could just get him alone if I could just explain it to him if I could just tell him how sorry I am if I could just get him alone but I can't do it in front of these guys I boasted in front of them I'm supposed to be in charge of them It's going to be a bit before they're sure. They're 150 yards offshore. They've got to haul the net in. They've got to bring it in. Peter sees his opportunity. And when Peter does get there, I notice Jesus doesn't let him be alone with him. Okay? As it says, 
when they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire. So they're already ashore with fish on it. And Jesus calls out to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. He's bringing the whole crowd to where he and Peter are. I doubt that Peter has got an opportunity to be able to do what he wanted to do with Jesus alone. And now they're all together. As a matter of fact, Peter, Jesus has made sure that they're all together when this happens. Bring some of the fish you've caught. And what does Peter do? He goes ashore. He, he goes, hauls the net ashore full of large fish. He does it all himself. Does it all by himself. He runs over there. He pulls the whole thing over. And Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Now they know. Maybe they were unsure before, but now they know. I want you to notice in this narrative, I love it for a couple of reasons. But one, the God of the universe, the God that just proved himself to be God because he made this miracle catch. He made those fish gather around. He swum those fish into that net against all human violation rules, is sitting on the beach cooking 12, uh, 11 guys breakfast. Maybe not even 11. There's only about eight of them there. The ruler of the universe is cooking breakfast. Now, I don't have time for this, but that is the coolest thing about all of this, I think. But Jesus doesn't let Peter stay alone with him. Yet he asks him to serve. He proves to them that the God, the kingdom of heaven, is here to serve. Not only can he make miraculous things happen, he also can cook breakfast. He also can serve. The Son of Man didn't come to be served. The Son of Man came to serve. And he gives Peter the opportunity to serve. Go get some of your fish and bring it over here. The other thing that I find encouraging yet discouraging for my friend Peter, who I relate to, okay, is that you'd think after all of this that there'd be a strand of visible humility or repentance. But the thing is, is that Peter has changed not one bit. Bring some of the fish. And he's telling everybody to do it. Peter runs, elbows them out of the way, jumps onto the boat, grabs the entire net and hauls it over and throws it at Jesus' feet. He hasn't changed a bit. Think of everything that's happened in Peter's ministry. Jesus washes feet. Peter says, no, uh-uh, uh-uh. You can wash their feet, but me, wash my whole body. I'm a bigger man. I'm a better man. I'm their leader. I need my whole body washed. If it is you, command me to walk on the water to you. Everyone else is scared, but look at me, not me. I'll walk on the water. When every disciple wanted to ask him the same question, there's no way that they can bring themselves to ask it. Peter stands up and says, we have left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? Anytime when any self-respecting Jewish man should be flat on his face and not able to utter a single word because you have the glorified Messiah and you have the glorified Moses and you have the glorified Elijah, when you shouldn't be even thinking of talking, Peter jumps up and says, I'll build three temples, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. (laughs) And not only was it Did it breach a whole bunch of etiquette even to talk in that situation? His theology is completely messed up, too. 
He wants to worship Elijah and Moses along with Jesus. He didn't get it at all. That's why the Father's voice booms from heaven and says, Shut up! Before you dig yourself any deeper, man, what is with you? Shh! Listen to him. Not Moses. Not, notice, not even Moses or Elijah are talking. Okay? Listen to the Son. Listen to him. And then, of course, Jesus tells them, you're all going to deny me tonight. Peter says, not me. I'll die with you before I deny you. He so desperately wants to be number one again. He doesn't want to be a disciple if he can't lead. He doesn't want to be a disciple unless he can get credit for it. By the way, that's the downfall of every leader that has ever led. Walt and I know a a pastor who said something once. He said that, you know what? Everything can be accomplished if no one cares who gets the credit. The problem is, is that nothing gets accomplished because we all want the credit. Pastors want credit. Members want credit. Elders want credit. Authors want credit. Professors want credit. We all want credit. We all want to sell our books. We all want to look good in the pulpit. We all want to know what we're talking about, and yet nothing gets done because we're all worried about who's going to get the credit, and this is Peter's problem right now. Peter's desperately proving to Christ, desperately proving to him that I've got to lead. I can't just be one of them. Look at me. He still wants to be the greatest. Pastor Walt began this entire series about who was the greatest. Even after everything that's happened, even after the three denials, even after everything that Jesus has proved to him this very morning, and he still wants to be the greatest. Jesus has another plan. Back in verse 9, let's go back here. It says, when they gone to shore, what was there? A charcoal fire with fish on it. Now, the interesting thing is, is that word for charcoal fire is only used twice in the entire New Testament. It's only used twice. It's great for barbecuing fish. Literally, it's just a heaping mound of coals is literally what the, what the word means. But the only time that you see this is back in John 18. The temple police had built one. Peter was warming himself over it the first time he's ever asked the question. You were with him. You all know what charcoal smells like. When it's burning, Jesus made that charcoal fire on purpose. See, and I have to tell you, before I came to Grace Point, one of the reasons why I thought that Jesus was doing this was for Peter was to teach him a lesson. And that exactly was my attitude. He's here to teach him a lesson. But what being here has taught me is that, no, the only lesson that Jesus is trying to teach Peter is that he, yes, he takes him back. He takes him back to that very moment, but he's not doing it to rub his nose in it. He's doing it for him to understand that when he asks this next question, that Jesus remembers, he didn't forget, that he remembers that he denied him. And he's telling Peter, you, the denier, not the leader, not the strong fisherman, not the one with the big mouth, not the one that comes first before everyone else, you, the betrayer, you, the betrayer, you, Feed my sheep. He's not rubbing Peter's nose in it. That's something that we would do. 
Jesus is letting Peter know that no matter what's happened before, you're still my man. You're still the one upon this rock. This is amazing what happens next. This was the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Again, this is the third time. There's no doubt. They all know who he is. The first line of the next verse just fascinates me. When they had finished breakfast. (laughs) Nobody said a word. Nobody said anything. See, the disciples haven't changed yet either because the leader has finally shut up and they all want to know the same, they all want the same answer to the one question. What's the one question they all have right now? Every one of them has. What about Peter? Because they noticed too, you haven't talked to him since you've been back. They didn't say a word. They ate that entire meal and nobody asked. Nobody said anything. So the stage is completely set for the second question. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? There's the second question, y'all. Do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Peter, I know you don't feel like it, but you're still my fisher of men. You still got lambs to feed. Do it. This is why he brings him back here. Yes, to be reminded of who he is and that he has no fish. And yet the kingdom of the kingdom of heaven, the king of the kingdom of heaven now gives him kingdom of heaven rules. Yes, you're a betrayer. Yes, you're a denier. Yes, you've got a big mouth. And you have an ego problem but you're still my man. Feed my lambs. I think as soon as he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I think every disciple relaxed. I picture every disciple bump fists and go, bro, (laughs) Peter's back in. Yes. And they relax and they kick back and they graze a little bit more on their breakfast. Peter though, Peter's sitting ramrod straight. Peter's not relaxed at all. Because he's still afraid what he might have to do next. He's waiting for the string. He's waiting for the butt. He's waiting for the trap door to close. He's waiting for Jesus to say, feed my lambs. But you've got to do something about yourself. You've got to get your act together. He's waiting for that scolding. So he just says, and I want you to notice, Peter doesn't go there. Yes, Lord, I love you. That's all he says. Yes, Lord, I love you. As a matter of fact, it happens a second time, right? He says it again. Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then he says, feed my sheep. It's as simple as that for Jesus. I love you. Feed my sheep. See, you and I look at this story And I'm dumbfounded by it. I'm flabbergasted by it. You know why? Because of all this talk of being born again, of all this talk of being an overcomer and everything else, of all this talk that we need to walk the walk before we can witness to anybody else, Peter hasn't changed one bit. And he says these empty words, these empty words that just say, I love you. His his actions doesn't show it. His life does not show it. 
All he has is these words, I love you. And it's as simple as that for Jesus. Feed my sheep. There's no, well, you know what, Peter? If you loved me, I hate to point this out, man, but if you loved me, you know, your life may show it just a little bit. Or even worse, Peter, you know, if you loved me, then you wouldn't have denied me once, let alone three times. If you loved me, you wouldn't have such a big mouth. If you loved me, you wouldn't worry about being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If you loved me, I'd be able to tell. It's as simple as this for Jesus. Tell me you love me. That's good enough for me. You're still my man. Feed my sheep. Because when it happens a third time, do you love me more than these? When it happens a third time, it says Peter felt what? He felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know what Peter's telling Jesus right there? You know everything. You know that all I have right now are these words. You know that my life is so messed up. You know that all I have is these words. And I feel so empty just saying them because I failed you so. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Peter. It's as simple as that for Jesus. I used to think that what Peter really did here was confess, but if you think about it, he didn't confess, did he? In a way he confessed, in a way he said, I love you. And, you know, because a lot of us would have said, you know what, I don't even want to say the words because they, they, they're so dead to me. You know, I, how, can, how can I claim to love him after I've done what I've done? How can I claim to love him after my life doesn't show anything? How can I claim to love him after I failed him like this? So maybe even just saying the words was bold enough or something, but Jesus didn't care. The kingdom rules are this. We simply believe. Simply believe. Believe in the Father and the one who sent him. He said, then you shall have eternal life. You get to live in the kingdom. And there are days when all we'll have is those words. How are we doing today, Greg? Do you love me? I love you. But no mention of how I failed him. No mention of how far short I've fallen. No mention of my sin. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. The third question is prompted by a question that Peter asked him. And this isn't one of the questions of the kingdom. This is one of the questions of the kingdom of the world, which Peter is firmly living in right now. They have this wonderful moment. I believe it's a wonderful moment. And I think that Peter shakily thinks that he might get this because he tells me three times. I denied him three times. I, I think he's starting to put some things together. Okay, So I think he very shakily gets up because Jesus stands up and says, Peter, let's take a walk. So they walk, and I think that Peter's thinking, well, we must be doing some serious discipleship strategy because I'm the leader again. you know. So, so here we go. We're headed for a strategic planning session. See you guys. It says they were walking, and he turns and sees the disciple who Jesus loved. Now, the disciple who Jesus loved is who? The other guy who thinks he's the leader. Okay? He's the other guy who thinks he's the leader. 
As a matter of fact, one of the most comical things was that he took the two leaders of the group and sent them to do the most menial task for that Passover. He said, you go prepare the house. (laughs) They must have looked at each other. (laughs) And they must have looked at each other and said, you know what, this is your fault. If you would just shut up and let me be the leader, we wouldn't be having to do women's work here, okay? So he turns to the other one who's the leader, okay? He's the one that was sitting next to him, Jesus at the supper. He even is reminding, (laughs) Peter can't read this. Peter's been dead for 50 years, okay? But he's still reminding us that John was sitting at his right hand that night, okay? John was sitting in Peter's place. In fact, Peter was the one that said, ask him the question, who is going to betray you? Because nobody else would. The leader is sitting at the end of the table because he's been relegated to that and he's going, ask him, ask him. That's your job, John. That's what the guy sitting right there does, okay? Ask him. Who's going to betray you? When Peter sees him, he turns and says, Lord, what? (laughs) What about him? You and I, am I the leader again? What about him? Because what he's hoping Jesus is going to say is, no, Peter, you're the leader, okay? John, come here, come here. Sorry, dude, you were in it up to the end. Yeah. But you go on and get the recording contract. See what I'm saying? But here's Jesus' next question. The third question of the question of the kingdom. He says, if this is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. The third question of the kingdom is, what is that to you? See, because this is what's going to happen to us. There's always going to be somebody. There will always be somebody. There are always going to be people that are smarter than us. There are always going to be people that, that it looks better than. There are going to be churches that it looks like they're doing it more right than we are. And there are going to be churches that look at us and say, you know what, you're doing it all wrong. There are always going to be people. Always going to be people that will discourage us. Our own egos will take us away and say, you know what, I must be doing something wrong but I'm, because I can't do it as well as he can. What, what, what's going on here? There are always going to be people. The third question of the kingdom. After you have no fish, after do you love me? The third question is, what is that to you? If, and, and he says to Peter, he says, you know what? If I choose him to remain until I come, if he's still alive, if I choose him to be alive, and you know what? He, he almost did it. As far as the disciples went, John is the only one that made it into his 30s, late 30s. In fact, he may probably made it into his hundreds. He's the last one. These guys have been dead for 50 and 60 years by the time that John writes this down. It almost happened. <laughs> There's always going to be somebody. And at Grace Point, you guys, there's always going to be somebody in another church, in some other place, that's going to tell us that love isn't enough. That's going to tell us that grace isn't enough. The third question for us, not for them, it's for us. What is that to you? You follow me. We've been led to a great place. This church has been led to a great place. I, uh, <clears throat> before I met Pastor Walt, 
I'd never ever been to the Willow Creek Leadership Summit before. Because before I met Pastor Walt, leadership was my least favorite subject. Because again, what I hear when I go to a leadership summit is how bad a leader I am. The difference between me and Walt is when Walt hears it, Walt says, you know, I could be that good. What I hear is, there's no way I'm going to be that good. And why am I spending money on a book that tells me how lousy a leader I am? But he introduced me to Bill Hybels, and Bill Hybels said once, he said it first at, at, at one summit, and he comes up and he says, you know what, the local church is the hope of the world. And then two years later, it was two years later, he said, I've got to revise this. He said, the local church, when done right, <laughs> is the hope of the world. Because he realized in that two-year interim is that not every local church is the hope of the world. Every, because not every local church lives, and this is my interpretation, not every local church can live with the rules of the kingdom of heaven. Not every local church can be open. Not every local church can welcome Not every local church hears the questions. Children, you have no fish. Do you love me? What is that to you? So it allowed me to put into words, see, what what happened was, was that I knew what I wanted it to look like, but I had no idea what it did look like until I came here. So I have to tell you that probably my years here was much more for me than it was for you. And so I look at this now. Children, you have no fish. Do you love me more than these? What is that to you? I take those three questions that I hear every day, and I want to leave this for you because this is Grace Point. I think that a Christ-centered, grace-oriented Adventism lived out in a selfless local church is the hope of the world. You guys are it. We're not perfect. We've got problems. We've got big steps to take. We've got big decisions to make. But there is one thing that we know. That he loves us. And that above all else gathers us together. That above all else we understand that grace is the point. My final plea is... We need all you leaders that are out there that haven't stepped up to step up. Pastor Walt can't do this alone, and no matter who he gets to sit in my office, won't be able to do it alone either. So we've got problems. We're not perfect, but we are the hope of the world. Because it's imperfect people. It's imperfect people, people who are imperfect and know it. A church that's imperfect and knows it and remembers it every time they look in the face of a fellow sinner. We don't remind each other that we're sinners because we're rubbing our nose in it. We remind ourselves because we're sinners because he still sits at that fire and says, feed my lambs. But Lord, wait a minute. Let me remind you who I am. Let me remind you of what I've done to you. Let me remind you of how far short I fall. And he is there to remind us at that fire, you're still my man. You're still my woman. Feed my sheep. A church that remembers who they are and where they come from, looks at someone else on the outside and does not judge, sees a fellow sinner and reaches out in love and lets grace be the point. And you become the place where God's grace meets their need.
We got that. And we got that. We are the hope of the world. Remember the questions. Because they'll come on Monday. Our king will remind us. Children, you have no fish, do you? No, I don't. Do you love me? Yeah, I do. So what is that to you? Forget the enemy. Let's keep our eyes on the one who's called us. I made the last slide because I knew I wouldn't be able to say it. We love you so very much. That logo kind of looks like a flower to me. It always has. So I just ask that you pray that it will bloom in the desert. And again, I won't need Don Larson's jersey to remind me of you. You're always right there. Thank you. Thank you so much. Alan, I'm going to need you to pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we felt the uh, Holy Spirit here today through Pastor Greg.